1: Hello, and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the reporter and novelist Luke Jennings, who's probably best known for having written the original novels on which the series Killing Eve was based, but whose new novel is called Panic, or possibly Hashtag Panic, which is a new thriller, very different from the Killing Eve books. Luke, welcome. Thank you. Is it Hashtag Panic or Panic? Hashtag Panic, yeah. Hashtag Panic. Now, this book is set very much in a kind of, or at least it starts out in this sort of world of online fandom of of this kind of groups of people all over the world who stan a TV programme. What was it that caught your imagination about that particular world? Well, before Killing Eve,
0: I really knew almost nothing about online TV fandom But when the TV programme started going out, I began to be contacted by fans online and I got drawn into that world. A lot of writers don't concern themselves with fans and a lot of TV people, again, don't really concern themselves with fans. But it struck me as being a, a very, very interesting world the people involved were from all over the world, living in often very obscure places, and many of them leading difficult lives for one reason or another. And this online chat room was a place where they could be themselves, where they could hang out with people like themselves, where they could argue, where they could obsess about Killing Eve and the characters. And the way that this online world had replaced, in some cases, real relationships. I mean, not that these weren't real relationships, but real life relationships was very interesting to me. And in fact, a lot of them went to great lengths to meet up. And the group had a meetup in Prague, which was the place that was thought to be somewhere everybody could get to from Russia at that time.
1: And this was a group of Killing Eve fans you,
0: you befriended? This was a group of Killing Eve fans, yeah. And I stayed in touch with them, they stayed in touch with me. And as I said, I got drawn into that world and its peculiar conventions and its language and into the lives of these fans who were, who were all very, very different.
1: Did you go meet them in
0: Prague? No, I didn't go. I didn't go. Were you tempted? I, well, I met, I went to St Petersburg on a research trip And I met one of them there, and I've met some in London. So these are... um, They definitely are real people. (laughs) Although there were catfish and weird lurkers and trolls who would swim into the group and hang around for a bit and then vanish.
1: And how did this start to turn itself in your mind into a plot? Because this is a book in which... You know, it starts with this online community of people, but it comes offline fairly fast and quite dramatically.
0: Well, I was interested in in the intensity with which these people were interested in Killing Eve and the characters of Killing Eve. And I asked myself the question, what would happen if they actually got drawn into the lives of the characters in the show and the, the actors in the show? and the production of the show. And that was really the starting point. What if idea like that. Also, the fact that the online world is such a perfect metaphor for deception, for shape-shifting, for disguise, for disinformation, all of these kind of things. And when this almost kind of espionage world hits real life, there's going to be an, an impact going to be lots of different sorts of impacts on the lives of those individuals. And I was interested in taking those ideas and, and running with them and trying to make something very entertaining out of it. So it starts off as a, as you say, as this online group of people and transmutes into this a kind of road movie really, which is another genre I love. So. I was just taking all these ingredients and having the most fun with them I could, really.
1: Yeah, you are obviously having a ball. There's road movie, there's murder mystery, there's all sorts going on. Incidentally, as world-building, you have a couple of what read like little in-jokes. Like you mentioned, I think, one of the characters says they watch Killing Eve, and there's another character says something complimentary about Sandra Oh. Is this a universe in which Killing Eve exists, which would imply that the universe in which you're writing, there's a Luke Jennings out there somewhere?
0: I couldn't resist it, actually. I didn't ask myself any real deep ontological questions. (laughs) And I wasn't trying to play into some postmodern conceit. I I just thought it would be fun for the insiders who were TV fans to... I mean, that would definitely be a reference that any fan of the fictional show in the book would know about. Yeah. Orphan Black, Killing Eve, those kind of shows about which um, endless discussion and interpretation is possible.
1: And there's the same sort of quasi-sexual frisson between two female characters that fascinates the fandom here that obviously was present in Killing Eve, wasn't it? Yes. So I I took that,
0: you know, not the characters, but the idea of this relationship which may be wholly imagined by the fans and which, of course, allows for almost infinite hypothesis and clue searching, which is what online fans love to do, which is to take an almost word-by-word dissection of scenes for subtexts and um, secret messaging and all of that kind of thing. And that kind of relationship, which would not be put in the forefront of a science fiction show but is allowed to be a kind of it's either a backbeat which exists or maybe it's purely in the imagination of these characters but either way it becomes by being discussed it becomes a thing which can then have its own life and give rise to fanfic and all kinds of fantasy media that spring off from the show.
1: Do you think that the existence of online fandoms of this intensity has changed the way in which people write and create television drama and and so forth?
0: Yes. Discussion boards like these actually have an effect on the media itself. In Glee, for example, fans almost took control of the plot line. And the major trends on these chat rooms, which then bleed onto Twitter and other social media, definitely influence the writers and producers of shows. Whether the writers and the producers like what they're reading is is another matter. They might well object to it. There was definitely a tension in Killing Eve between what the fans wanted to happen and what the writers of the show had determined was to be the storyline. And you get collisions online about whether a given storyline is close enough to canon, i.e. the original material, or whether it's teasing the fandom or whether it's going with them. And, you know, the fans of. Firefly, which is a TV series, generated enough interest to actually have a movie made when the series was cancelled. So that gives you some idea of the power of these groups. And writers and producers ignore these people at their peril. Not that they have to do what fans want, but they definitely need to be aware of the fans as a a force that will influence the
1: reception of the show and the way that it's going to go. How did you feel as you watched Killing Eve turn into what it turned into? I mean, because obviously Phoebe waller Wallenbridge- put her imprint on your material to some extent <laughs> do you find yourself like a fan saying oh that's not canon I'm, I'm not happy with the way that story's going or, or was it like watching your own baby go out into the world? The
0: series that I had something to do with was the first series and Phoebe and I had a long run-up to that in which we were able to discuss the characters in detail and the relationships between the characters. And, and it's the relationship between those two central characters that is at the centre of it. And if you get that right, which Phoebe absolutely did, that was what was important to me. And after that, I mean, there were probably, I don't know, 25 writers doing different episodes on in the course of the four series. So many, many people coming with all sorts of different ideas. And as the writer of the original material, you can't insist on anything, really. I mean, it's theirs to do with what they will.
1: Yeah, I wasn't expecting you to be entitled to insist, but I was just interested in what your response was. You know, Well, I like some things more than others. You
0: know, It wouldn't have been the way that I did it, but you have to step back. You can't take a kind of overseeing role because these people, they've got jobs to do. They've got a, a show to make. They've got their own concerns. And um, I was consulted... I said what I thought, and I, I thought some things worked brilliantly. And I think that some things, to my mind, didn't work so well. And fans had things they liked and writers they liked and writers they didn't like. And But the very fact that there was all this incredible diversity of opinion swirling around the series was great i mean that was the thing that really made me happiest was that people were talking about it whether they liked it or whether they were furious with it as a writer as you know that's what really you want you want to move into the conversational mainstream which for a time killing eve was was there
1: it certainly was yeah now as speak of the conversational mainstream there's a lot of discussion at the moment about who gets to tell what story and I went a bit over you know, the background of this podcast. I went and reread the Killing Eve trilogy. And I've been startled by the boldness with which you as a you know, kind of middle-aged guy were writing a sort of, well, middle-aged woman who steps out of her ordinary life and starts a lesbian affair and a gay female assassin or possibly, I don't know, she, Villanelle's sexuality is rather kind of more complex than that. That seemed a kind of bold thing to do in an age when the sense you can't write outside yourself. Did you feel that was transgressive?
0: Not really. I mean, this idea that you can't write outside yourself, how limiting are you going to allow that to be? I think that the whole point of fiction is to get outside yourself. And, you know, if you look at Flaubert, Tolstoy, they had female protagonists whose lives they made very detailed. And I don't think you can say you can't do that. It, that's what fiction is. It's getting outside yourself. And so for the purposes of those books, that's where the story led. And so that's what I did. I think if you start thinking that there are things that you're not allowed to do, well, that's not what art or fiction or writing is about. So no, no. And again, in Panic, I mean, these are young characters. They're 20. I'm old enough to be their grandparent (laughs) or at least parent. And for me, the excitement of writing fiction is flinging yourself as far away from your own personality and tastes. I mean, I'm, a, as you say, a middle-aged to ancient guys who likes fishing and going to the pub. So that's, you know, the stuff I write about is not my scene. I just really enjoy, as I said, getting outside myself. You're not going to find me writing stories about media figures in North London having agonised, adulterous affairs, probably. I'd, I'd rather go further than that. I'd rather set my characters in stranger places. And I think also there is now, media moves very fast. Books come out, they have a brief window in which they can be seen and read and publicised. TV programmes come out, streaming TV and film world. It flashes past and people's desires for different stuff is you've got to be visible, you've got to move fast. And I don't think that you can be ordered to stay in your box in the way that you're suggesting.
1: I'm not interested in that. I mean, in terms of touching a third rail in the culture war, you have not one but two trans characters in this book. And that's obviously something that, at the moment, is a particular site of contention in the media. How did you approach that? Did you feel you owed it to those characters in that community to do a great deal of research before writing them? Yeah.
0: I know trans people. I've been talking to them for some time. They are, on the other hand, the characters in the book, Danny and Kai, they are fictional characters. These are not embodiments of ideas. There is nothing political about their inclusion. I have no political skin in this game whatsoever they're just characters and trans characters are. Uh, they're around they're part of our lives and and they should be included in the fiction that we write and because i was writing about people who as i explained before were living quite isolated difficult lives i talked to trans people about their lives and and i hope that this the situations reflect the realities of some of these people's lives but having said that they're completely fictional characters who live in fictional places with they're not mirrors of anybody that i know but people that i know and that i've met i suppose serve as jumping off points for characters but Fictional characters, it's not A plus B equals C, as you know. The creation of a fictional character, especially you know, the complex characters like these, is a bit like the grain of sand and the oyster, a process of accretion where ideas and conversations and things you read and people you talk to, all of that slowly. And it took, it took a couple of years creating these characters. A character generates themselves, in my experience. And I didn't actually go into this book thinking about the characters' identities at all. But trans people were part of the chat rooms that I was talking about. They're very much part of this fan landscape. And Particularly for Killing Eve or fan landscape in general? You no, know, in general. And I was very aware, for example, that trans people said to me, please, no suffering porn. In other words, you know, no anguishing over the hard times. Without exception, I was encouraged to look at the joy of those characters' situation the fun they had, the friendships. I mean, obviously, the background to their lives, I think we can take it as a given, is very hard. But nobody was particularly anxious for me to dwell on that side of things. It's been much documented. And so, really, what I was really keen on doing is having two trans characters. Well, they they turned out to be trans characters. That they are trans is incidental in this adventure. That's just who they happen to be, but it's not the point of them. And I'm hoping that 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 the fact of their transness is, is something that vanishes in the course of the narrative, although various things happen, as happen in the lives of trans people, to kind of to catch you up and remind you that people are often very hostile to these kind of characters. I'm looking at all four characters absolutely as individuals who are having an an adventure and hopefully a kind of riotous, fast moving adventure. That their deep identities are there, but it, it it's not a book about identities. It's just a, yeah,
1: it's a well, it's, it's an, an adventure it's story. A romper, it's a thriller, yeah. It's an adventure story, and you know when you write an adventure story. Like this, you know. your background is as a reporter. You find stuff out, you research this book. I mean, I found myself thinking, oh, that's very clever. That's how you avoid the police. And that's how you (laughs) send them the wrong way for six hours or whatever it is. Are you one of those thriller writers who feels you have to get it right, i.e. that your reporter's instincts for how this would work matter? Or do you write yourself, as Ian M. Banks used to, just licensed to say, I'm a fiction writer. This is a holiday from my day job. I'm just making it up.
0: No, I'm absolutely the first thing. And in Killing Eve, I was obsessive about making killing methods that would work. She had to get in. She had to do the job. And most importantly, she had to get out again safe. So all of these things had to be satisfied. And I do a lot of research because, I mean, just for me, and it's exactly for the reason that you say, because I was a reporter, I don't take a holiday. It's got to work. I know that it annoys people when people just walk away from dangerous situations and, um, and there are conveniently no police and spectators around and all the rest of it. I mean, this was one of the differences that Phoebe and I had on Killing Eve was that I felt what I've described to you, that it has to work in a very exact and technical way and she was she was kind of the opposite. She was a like, chill, you know. It's television. I do know from talking to I don't know, people who work in security services or whatever that planning is everything. So my stuff works essentially to the best of my knowledge and the best of my ability. And I cannot move on if I'm not satisfied that it would work or that I haven't made sure that. Somebody's going to come back to me and say, "Well, look, there are only 17 rounds in that caliber of Glock or whatever." So it's right if I. This is a
1: very nerdy bit about about the number of rounds there are in a particular model of gun. At one point in in panic, isn't there? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, it does get nerdy. I did research on all sorts of things, like breech birth deliveries, for example. I mean, I was starting from scratch on that. <laughs>
1: Nothing in your previous reporting career. Nothing in my
0: previous reporting career had led me there. But again, this is the great thing about reporting. And I always did the sort of reporting where I was on a completely different story every week. And you meet extraordinary people and you pick up very strange bits of information about the way that things really work and the way that things are really done, which is often very different from what you might imagine. And sooner or later, everything finds its place in fiction, I find. Somebody that I interviewed 20 years ago as a very young man saw Laurel and Hardy live or something like that, you know, um, something. And just, I remember this man who's now dead describing this occasion and going into the dressing room and seeing these two very elderly, dilapidated alcoholics in some second rate flop house theater and i've never forgotten it and i mean i will never write about laurel and hardy or this guy but other people's descriptions of things that have meant a lot to them stay with you i'm sure you find the same thing yeah little nuggets or phrases or yeah. yeah incidents or moods and i think you file these and they're there when you need them, if you wait long enough. I find writing fiction, you have to... You can't rush it. You can't just bang it out. If you take it slowly enough, it will show you where to go and all of these things will surface and and give the thing much more texture.
1: You said earlier on that the characters will sort of develop themselves. I mean, in terms of how you put this together, because it's quite a plotty book as well, mm. Are you of the sort of architect or gardener variety of writer? I mean, do you start with your characters and your kind of initial setup and then see where it takes you? Or did, did you do a certain amount of like, this is where I'm heading. These are the plot beats. This is who done it and, and how they done it and, you know, why they done it? And so no. So. I mean, I start off with a, a sort of, I
0: suppose, a one sentence description. This is where it starts. This is what happens in the middle. And this is where we end up. But not more than that. Screenwriting, as you know, is exactly the opposite. Screenwriting, before you write, you have to know absolutely everything about what everybody's going to do. You can't have a journey without maps when you're screenwriting. But I do think that... that? Is that just because of the structure
1: and and the timings?
0: I think it's much more to do with the money, Um, All sorts of people want to know in advance what's going to happen. And a lot of people have a stake in it. In fiction, of course, no one has a stake in it except you and later on the publisher. So you can make that journey a lot more erratic. And I find that if you do, if you keep it loose, then you end up going in unexpected directions that you get nudged into along the way which are better than anything that you might have done if you'd had to do that. What for me is a horrendous process in script writing, which is producing detailed synopses of something that you haven't even started writing. <laughs> because for me, it's the process that generates the next stage.
1: Yeah,
0: I can't do that thing of sort of flying a drone over the whole thing and seeing a complete overview from start to finish with, as you say, with its beats and its acts and all that stuff. I don't have to, so I don't.
1: Am I right saying think Codename Villanelle was your first fiction you wrote? Is that right? No, no. Or I, had you written before? Oh, you had written, written before? What?
0: Yeah, no, i have been writing novels for not quite a couple of decades, but some time before that, half dozen. Oh,
1: right. But that started life, didn't it, as a Kindle single, is that right for our mutual friend, Andrew Rosenheim?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, which was an idea that was wonderful but short-lived in that you could write things of any length for Amazon. They, they approached a certain amount of fiction writers, non-fiction writers, and said, this is a place for your projects that might not fit into conventional fiction or non-fiction, maybe because they're massively long, maybe because they're tiny, And the great thing about it was that Amazon would publicize these Kindle singles, as they called them, on the basis of if you like that, you'll like this. And it was, I guess, too good to last, really. That what attracted me and other writers was the idea that you could write something and a fortnight after you've finished it or a week after you'd finished it, it would be online and you'd be collecting 70p in the pound for every copy sold. And Amazon was doing the advertising. I mean, what was not to like there? Obviously, it was too good to last, and it didn't last, but Codename Villanelle surfed that moment. And so it got, as an ebook quite a lot of movement.
1: And was that what led to the show? Was it effectively an online word-of-mouth fandom Kind of, in the first place, propelled it to the notice of TV people.
0: Well, a, a reader recommended it to the TV producer, and but now, of course, writing ebooks is a very tough climate indeed. You're dropping your novel or your your nonfiction book into an ocean of others with only yourself as your publicist. Some people do brilliantly and make absolute fortunes, especially writing erotic and romantic fiction. And somehow they, they publicize it to groups of people who, who want to buy that and they do very well indeed. To me, that's incredibly daunting. I mean, you get your novel out there and you can force your friends to read it, but it's a, it's a tough sell. So I was very lucky is what I'm saying, with Codename Villanelle.
1: I was intrigued, and I don't know whether you'll have a sort of answer to this, but it struck me that what Panic has in common with the Villanelle trilogy is that you're really interested in characters, and not just the trans characters, but characters whose identities are quite provisional and subject to change. I mean, you know, almost none of the characters in these books are, if you like really grounded, they're stepping out of their lives mm. or their lives are transforming or their lives are not what they thought they were or what other people think they are. What is it that you think draws you to those, those characters?
0: Well, I think they're very interesting from a fictional and possibly a kind of TV point of view because they are characters in the process of change. A change and crisis and forward movement are really what TV and fiction are all about. So I find transformation is very, very exciting in fiction. It's exactly what you said. It's people, characters, who discover that they are not who they thought they were and go through some sort of metamorphosis. And I think it's because I'm attracted by the idea of senses of possibility, that nothing is fixed, that things can change radically, your life can flip. And I think this is true. I think more and more people don't, they, I mean, they don't have static careers. They, they move from idea to idea. They move from job to job. They move from place to place. We're, we're a very mobile culture, very slippery. And, I think that reflects a lot of people's lives. And also, there is hope in the idea that nothing is fixed, that things can turn, that that characters can come from nowhere and triumph. I, I do think that the landscape of online communities has thrown up a completely new sort of hero and heroine, of people who... Are moving very, very fast, very much on the kind of the tide of ideas, moving fast, changing their minds, responding to criticism and to adoration. You, I think you've got to be very fast on your feet these days, and and that again is very, very interesting because it means that adventures come fast and change comes fast and. You're not stuck in a life that you don't want forever. You can reinvent yourself very quickly, either in real life or you just become somebody else online or you you make your own change. And I'm just very attracted by that idea. I think possibly I'm old enough to remember lives where you went into a job at 22 and you retired from it at 60, and it was fixed, and your life was fixed, and where you lived was fixed, and the people that you saw were a fixed number of people. And the, the idea that contemporary life is different, that it, it, it's not fixed in its in its colour and taste and sound, that you can be the instrument of extraordinary change in your life. I think that's very exciting, and I think it probably is at the, the heart of a lot of the characters that I describe. So Villanelle, for example, is a, a damaged child of post-Soviet Russia who goes on to live in a fabulous a- apartment in, in Paris and, and wear the most beautiful clothes and do exactly what she likes, apart from, from time to time having to kill people. And that's she doesn't seem to see that as a burden, actually. Well, she doesn't see it as a burden. No, it very much is something that she might be doing for her own pleasure anyway. But it's the change is very interesting to be taken from a prison in the Pyram Oblast and um, and relocated to Paris is interesting to me, or to be a TV fan who lives in the outback of Australia. And then to suddenly find yourself face to face with the object of your very distant adoration and swept into an adventure with her. Well, these dramatic changes, I think, are good fun.
1: They are. Is there, is there anything, do you think, at all anxious-making or sinister about the profound attachments that in this new world we're able to form in fan communities with I mean, I suppose stalking and so forth is a pathological manifestation of it but that you know the, the online fan has an imaginary object of desire who may not be the person that they think they are in real life well there is this notion
0: of parasocial relationships where which is exactly what you're talking about where characters develop what's called a parasocial relationship which is an, an imagined relationship which is fed by detailed knowledge about a character and often leads to the creation in the fan's mind of a real relationship with a person who is nothing like that their person is in real life. But actually, that wasn't my experience. My experience was that most of these fans were extremely self-aware. They knew that they were fans. They knew that these characters were characters whose lives they could enjoy and be fascinated by at a distance but they were not deceiving themselves that they had relationships with them it was actually much more in many cases about using these star figures as intermediaries to make friends with other people like themselves so it's a very aware culture they're not crazy fans it's almost like a hobby something they can step into, but it doesn't mean to say that they don't have real lives with which they're completely involved.
1: Now, just finally, I wanted to ask about the other side of this, because you have some of the antagonists in the book. I mean, there are sort of quite plural sets of antagonists, but you have the, I think, they're called the Legion, aren't they, who are a sort of Hmm. extreme conservative alt-right sort of cult-cum political movement. I don't know how you describe them. But do you think that they stand in for a sort of reaction to exactly the transformative quality of modern life that the digital age has enabled? I mean, do you think that right-wing reactionary, right-wing populism we see rising is a reaction to the sort of identity free-for-all we've described and you've celebrated?
0: I think it must be. It's the other side of the coin. And as I said, I don't have a personal political stance on this, because I've set panic in the United States. And if you look at the far left and the far right, the things that they say, in many cases, are equally ridiculous. But with the Legion, what I would think I was interested in is the notion of a movement that was at once ridiculous and terrifying. Those two things at the same time. And I think that is part of the contemporary experience, is that the things that we're frightened of are also things that are infuriating and ridiculous. The things that worry us are maddeningly trivial. They're not great, terrifying forces of history. They're crazy people shouting in the middle of the road. And whether that those people are on the political left or the political right, they are ridiculous and they're terrifying at the same time. And my characters are uh, on the run from this kind of, I guess it's a sort of proud boy type movement called the Legion. And you can't, on the one hand, take it seriously. And on the other hand, you disregard it at your Peril, and there's something nightmarish about this about characters who are you can't pin them down, their beliefs are so different from yours on both sides of the political spectrum that you can't engage, and so both sides are simultaneously frightened and revolted and in contempt of the other side, and there's a sort of there's a kind of comedy in all of this. And I did want to bring this specifically diverse four people into the hands of an organization that is about everything that they aren't. Because I think how we how we deal with people who hold radically different opinions from us is one of the great questions of the age. I mean, without wanting to plunge into profundity, you have to deal with people who cannot see your point of view or any part of it. And you can't see, understand their point of view or any part of it. And how do we negotiate all of this? You know, these four kids are all undergoing change of one sort or another, and they're, they're forced to face the fact that Half of society is implacably opposed to absolutely everything, not just that they stand for, but that they are. So, so where do we go with all of this? I mean, I don't propose any answers, but that's why I wanted those kind of characters.
1: Luke Jennings, thank you very much indeed for your time. Great
0: pleasure, Sam.